Hello, podcast world, and welcome to the Beers with Engineers podcast, where we have a pint of fun and a shot of geek. My name is Bert Ushold, and for episode number six, my guest is my good friend Brian Smith, and the title of this episode is Agility and Character, for Work and for Play. Before going any further, I'm going to give a quick plug for my company, Dexterity Engineering. Website, dexterityeng.com. You can find out more about me and my career in product development there and see if I might be able to help you out someday, especially if your product involves plastic parts. Enough about me and back to the introduction. The early part of Brian's career was in the dumps, literally, because he worked on garbage dumps for the military in Guam. Stateside years later, he got into software development for various aircraft, among other things. After many years managing people, he now coaches agile development and we talk about the differences and similarities between coaching and managing. A few karate kicks and a shout out to the Wright brothers help round out our conversation. Let's get to it. Good day to all. My guest today is my good friend, Brian Smith. Welcome to the Beers with Engineers podcast, Brian. Thank you very much, Bert. Uh, so Brian and I have done a great many things together, camping, rock climbing, hiking, Watching many Super Bowls, uh, worked at our church bazaar gambling tent, fried dough tent, and gone to church many times together. One thing we have never done is worked together professionally. So, neither can I think of anything really engineering related that we've done together that uh, we helped each other on. Um, well, some home remodeling projects, but nothing else really. One of my past guests, we helped build a trebuchet together, which sort of counts as an uh, engineering project. So, uh, if I'm wrong, I'm sure he'll correct me. I see him nodding his head in affirmation on the screen, so I, I'm not wrong. Good for me. Uh, so, as well as we know each other, we've been friends for many years, so there's a good chance we'll both learn something new about each other as we talk a bit more professionally than personally. But don't fear, listeners, we'll get into some of the good, fun other stuff as well. And um, I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit and say that this actually might not be a beers with engineers podcast. This might actually be a bourbon with engineers contest, con, podcast. I can't talk contest. <laughs> a beers, a bourbon with engineers contest would get very interesting. <laughs> so uh, the question we will start with: What beer? I don't think you are drinking a beer. Are you drinking today, Mr. Smith? That's right. Going with the theme of what we drink at our Super Bowl party, I did decide to go with uh, Fireball whiskey for this evening. So. Hopefully, as the podcast goes along, my tongue doesn't get too loose, and I'm able to keep it on an even keel. So, looking forward so, to today. Fireball is a it's a brand, correct? It is a it is a brand. It's a cinnamon whiskey. Uh, tastes a lot like an atomic fireball. Okay, all right, that sounds good. Uh, the next uh, way we start this little shindig off is an engineering joke. Do you have an engineering joke to share with okay. us? Okay. Um, a doctor, a lawyer, and an engineer are out playing golf, and they keep getting stuck behind the party in front of them, and they keep hitting up, and the party in front of them is just constantly slowing them down. They're starting to get really frustrated, and then the manager of the golf course, the guy who sends people off the tees, comes by in a golf cart and says, Oh, I'm so sorry, but the guy in front of you, he's blind. And so the lawyer says, oh, man, that's terrible. Do you know what happened? You know, I'd like to sue the guy who made him blind. And the doctor says, oh, you know, I'd love to help that guy. You know, I'll help him. I'll, I'm a surgeon. I'll help him with his eyesight. And the engineer says, why can't he just play at night? <laughs> that, that is one of my favorites. I have to... Uh... Mentioned, well, I don't have to mention, but I will anyways. Um, somebody gave a variation of that joke uh, on one of the earlier podcasts. Uh, your version is much closer to, to my version that I speak. And I think I actually throw, it's actually a foursome with a, a priest who will say some prayers for the, for the blind golfer. So anyways, so there you go. All right, so you're an engineer. Why are you an engineer? A little bit about your early career and how you came about doing such things. I was the reason I'm an engineer is because the Air Force paid for me to become an engineer. I um, was given a scholarship by the United States Air Force to go to school for environmental engineering. 
Originally, environmental engineering was not the field I wanted to go into. It was uh, nuclear, uh, but the Air Force said, we'll give you a scholarship for environmental. So that's the direction that I went. So let me interrupt for a second. So you wanted engineering and they chose the branch or it's a real I was, yeah, they did. They said that they had more scholarships available for environmental than uh, for nuclear at this point. And that if I went the route of nuclear uh, environmental engineering, I was much more likely to get a scholarship. So, All right. so let's go back a little bit uh, before that. What led you to engineering generically? So we, we found why you got specifically environmental. Yeah. Yeah. I was always good with math and science. It was my forte. I loved physics. From an early age, I could do math very easily. And I struggled with English and literature. So it just seemed to be a good fit for me to go in that direction. I did want to be able to get a scholarship and engineering seemed like a good direction to go in terms of pursuing a scholarship. I, I knew I wanted to have a technical career. Funny thing is, as my life went on, my career became less technical, more managerial, but we'll get into that. Yep, yep. Now, it's funny, you mentioned the your English and whatnot wasn't so so good. One of my college roommates, uh, we were both had you know, scholarships that the school uh, offered, and you know, one day we were comparing SATs, and we had the same SAT value, or numbers. And I was engineering major, he was a journalism major. His math was higher than mine, and therefore my verbal was higher than his. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to be the way that one works, but no, 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 it did work. no, no, yeah, I pretty much maxed out the SAT on math, but my English wasn't yeah. so great. So, uh, so you mentioned you're mostly in management now. How, what was some of your early more engineering type of things, and then how did that evolve into a more manager managerial position? Well, my first, uh, my first effort after I got out of college was to be a pilot, and that didn't work out. I tried to fly for the U.S. Air Force, and um, something about forgetting to put my flaps up and forgetting to put my flight my lights on or going in the exit instead of the entrance. You know, they kind of said that's this isn't really a good place for you. This, so I took the first job I could. They shipped me off to Guam, and I would I ran the landfill at uh, Anderson Air Force Base in Guam and the started up the recycling center there. Uh, got their recycling program going, their green waste program uh, going there. Uh, from there, I ran the environmental compliance assessment management program for both Anderson Air Force Base in Guam and Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts, uh, where I separated from there to get out and I took a job for EarthTech doing environmental cleanup for three years. After September 11th, I decided I wanted to go back and work for the Air Force, and I took a job as a systems engineer working uh, for the for the Air Force Acquisition Committee. And All right. All right, we've got to back up to a <clears throat> landfill. So what were your responsibilities of managing the landfill? Well, were you the guys with the big the, the flags telling trucks go this way, no trucks go that way? <laughs> no, mine was more design engineering uh, for the next sections. They were building their first uh, what's called Subtitle D uh, compliant landfill, compliant with the new environmental regulations, uh, ensuring that the liners were built correctly, taking measurements, groundwater measurements, things like that, surveying heights, um, slope doing compliance assessments as they were building that kind of stuff all right so so let me let you confirm something i've been telling people for years is that things don't degrade in landfills aren't they designed to have things not degrade is that a correct statement yeah it, one of the things is you you want to limit and you'll notice that you'll um when you throw stuff away or read anything at the landfill it says liquids are prohibited um, there's a reason we don't want liquids in the landfills because the liquids contribute to the breakdown uh, decomposition okay. yep. of the things in the landfill. We cap both the bottom so that the water doesn't get leach out into the ground and we cap the top so that rainwater doesn't leach into the trash, uh, which slows the degradation process. What we're trying to do is reduce this, the creation of methane gas and we're, which is 
part of the decomposition process, right. uh, the de biodegradation process, and trying to reduce the amount of leach water that leaches down into the groundwater table, contaminating the groundwater. And then we surround the landfill with pipes that take down uh, both the leachate, the, the, the contaminated water that leaches out of the bottom of the landfill, and pump it out and treat it. And uh, we also have pipes that pump off the gas, the methane gas that's produced by landfill so that it can be off gas to the atmosphere. Okay. Yeah, because part of that question goes back to something I remember reading, geez, probably 30 years ago or more, talking about landfills and the thing which really popped out was they said, you know, they're going through and doing some landfill research. You know, that's a job I don't want. And, you know, they came across, you know, this newspaper wadded up, not wadded up, but folded up, and inside was some guy's dinner, which looked almost edible, like 20 years later. <laughs> because, you know, it was put into a landfill, it completely squished down, and no air got into it, and as you say, no water got into it. And uh, so that, that took care of that. All right, so you uh, let's go in this direction. Uh, I know from conversations and a uh, sneak peek at your uh, LinkedIn profile, uh, something you do or manage is agile development. And I've heard that word thrown around quite a bit. I have just the faintest clue. So I'll ask you to explain that a little bit better for me, please. Agile software development and, and agile development. Well, agile development came from the agile software development uh, movement, which came from a group of guys who went out to uh, Utah ski ski area and had a conference and said, "We're we're not happy with the way we're software is being developed." It was very much based on waterfall development methodologies, where you write the requirements for everything first, and you don't stop until you've written all the requirements. Then we design everything up front, big design up front, and then we build everything all at once and then we probably don't ship because something doesn't work when you try to integrate it all together at the end yeah, right yeah. and okay. these guys said uh we've discovered a way of doing software better uh this is actually a quote from the actual manifesto we are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do this and from that, they they express four things that they value over others. Through this work, we've come to value individuals and interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, co customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change over following a plan. And from those four values, they wrote a set of principles that they agreed on, 12 software, uh, 12 agile principles that they agreed upon that uh, they thought would work better for software development. Um, oh, one thing that ends that statement that I just said, those four values is that is while we agree there's value from the things on the right, we think that the things on the left, we value those things more. So it doesn't mean we don't value documentation, but we value working software more. Those so, principles, so yeah, go ahead. Okay. So right and left, you're talking about some list of columns. You're not talking about, you know, liberals and conservatives, right? Right, 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 right. <laughs> we value working software over documentation. That doesn't mean we don't value documentation. But if we document everything and you don't have a working product, then we don't that we don't see that as a delivery of value. From those Agile Manifesto, which those principles have stood the t test of time, there was also... Uh, going on the lean manufacturing movement in the uh, very much came out of the uh, Toyota uh, production yeah. system. The lean manufacturing movement had a set of principles of its own, which matched very nicely. Those lean principles match very nicely with the agile principles of software development. And together, we when we put those two things together, we say we call something a lean agile mindset when you have a mindset that that agrees with those types of principles and way of doing business and when i say i coach agile software development or agile system engineering agile system development i'm very much coaching those principles those practices some of the things that come from that uh some of the ways of doing business i teach uh for i coach for the department of defense building large systems 
at scale, which means you have to put multiple teams having to work together and they all need to work in an agile manner, but the whole team of teams also has to work in an agile manner in order to build a larger system. Uh, so right now, that's what I've been doing for the last several years. So does, when did those gentlemen, maybe a few ladies, I don't know, uh, when did it start? Do you know, like 90s, aughts? How far back does it go? Do you know I, you're gonna, I, I would appreciate if you edit that one out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Fair I enough. should know the answer. I should okay. know the answer to that question. Um, uh, and uh, might be considered a bad coach, but I don't know off the top of my head. I think it might That's be the a, 80s. Oh, maybe. Oh, goes that, that far back. Okay. Yes. Because it, it, it reminds me a little bit of concurrent engineering. Maybe you've heard that term. And when I did uh, my first co-op job was like in 86 and I don't know, something came across my desk for some way, shape or form. I don't know how talking about concurrent engineering. And, you know, as I recall, it said, well, you're designing it and you know, instead of just throwing it over the wall, as the phrase was to the manufacturing guys who have to figure out how to manufacture it, we'll talk to the manufacturing guys first so that, you know, when it goes into manufacturing, it'll be a much smoother transition. And my recollection as this brilliant junior in college was kind of, duh. It seemed kind of obvious. Um, right. Having done negligible software development, is there a sense of that that you might say also applies? Or is it things that, you know, a lot of things are obvious in retrospect. Um, well, but. Um, it's interesting you should ask that. Okay, it was 2001, by the way. The... Um, it, it, to some people, it's inherently obvious. I think a lot of it depends, and you can change your mindset. A mindset is informed by your background and stuff. But what happened was, before that, there was a large movement um, towards waterfall development, and waterfall engineering. And that informed almost everything. Uh, a lot of the principles and practices that came before that moment were First, you had a series of revolutions and the industrial revolution and how we approach things from the industrial revolution informed the way that we think and act. In fact, if you think about it, like, OK, the size of a train track, the size of our roads, you know, come from the size of the carts uh, from a cart and horse, which were oh, then, yep, yep. And, you know, and the size of the tanks that we can put on the space shuttle. Uh, although we don't have the space shuttle anymore, but the size of the tanks that we put on the space shuttle, the size of those are impacted by the size of those original cart paths because that impacted the width of a railroad track, which impacted uh, the width of the tunnels, and we needed to haul those uh, those tanks on a on a train. So the things that come, the revolutions that come before us, inform the the those those later revolution, uh, those later ways of doing business. And it isn't until we don't find that it doesn't fit well, the way of doing business that we used to do things doesn't fit well uh, with this new way of working that we say, duh, right? Uh, I mean, think about just think about how COVID literally changed the way we do business. Um, yeah. You know, before uh, many people had not heard of Zoom. Uh, people, when they asked to work from home, were not were told, "No, you can't work from home because there's no way we can trust that you're going to get any work done." Nowadays, uh, there are plenty of people in the technical industry who can demand that they work from home because they'll just find a company who will hire them and let them work from home these days. Uh, not all people and not all jobs, but it has certainly revolutionized the way we approach things. So, uh, I just one last comparison or comment on concurrent versus agile is, so you mentioned waterfall, which you know, seems like a serial way of doing things. You do this and then yes. goes over the next one, the next one. And yes. you know, I think prior to concurrent engineering, it was kind of serial, you know, you do this, then this, then this, then that. And I remember uh, back early nineties um, at one job, the company's just gangbusters growth and you know, at some point they said, all right, we're building this new building on our uh, on our property. You know, it's going to be a big lab and test facility. And, you know, they wanted it built yesterday. And my understanding of what they did was they said, all right, we're going to build a, I don't know, 100 foot by 200 foot building. It's going to be three floors. Go. 
And so they started digging the pilings and framing it up. And then, okay, all right, so now we know what that is. All right, now we're going to start designing it. You know, we'll put the stairways here, the elevators here, and so on and so on. I don't know exactly what it was, but it sounds very much like an agile development where you started with the things you absolutely had to have first, and then you got mm -hmm. going on those. And while you were going on those, you sort of figured out all the other stuff. Right, right. When I lived in Guam, uh, we had to get a school system started for the DOD kids who lived on base and the current school system was not sufficient and we didn't have the funds to build a large brand new school system and the type of funds needed, but we did have the funds to buy trailers. The problem was you don't build trailers in Guam because they get picked up by the hurricanes, the typhoons, <laughs> sorry, and swept out into the ocean. Not a really great place to build trailers. Right. So we built concrete trailers. Think about that for a second. <laughs> concrete trailers. We built boxes that were trailers, but they were built out of reinforced concrete, and we put them together in partitions, and that was the temporary school that they built until such time that they could build a uh, primary school system. Okay, so it was just so, easily transferred, with, small footprint, yeah. but very heavy. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, it's just getting started out there. And one of the main things that we learned from Agile that is important to Agile is that you want to learn early and often. You want to learn as much as possible. It, it starts with the understanding that we don't know everything. If you think about um, Langley, the Langley, uh, Pierpont Langley, and the Wright brothers, the Wright brothers started with the assumption that they didn't sorry, know. Who's Langley? Langley was the guy who Langley Air Force Base is named after, who was awarded a bucket load of money to go build the first flight, man, okay. the first I, flight I, aircraft. Okay, and he was failed miserably, as I recall. Yeah, he well, he was, yeah, that's the punchline. He felt he was the highfalutin scientist who knew everything and used the design everything up front, requirements everything up front then finally build it at the end versus the uh, Wright brothers who experimented their way to and had lots of failures along the way, but were able to uh, build that aircraft first uh, using those principles. Yeah, I, have you ever heard of this? Well, maybe some of the people on here, listening to this podcast probably haven't heard of it, but there's this little competition where you take a marshmallow, a spaghetti and tape. Uh, uh, masking tape, and you have to make a tower that you can put the marshmallow up at the highest height. Well, the people who succeed the most in that experiment, who are the best at that, are kindergartners. <laughs> really? And the, right. And the people who are the worst at this are people who graduate from business school. And the reason for that I'm glad is you say engineers. <laughs> no, no, engineers. Our engineers and architects actually come in quite well. Architects, especially, because they have some knowledge of design principles, right. yep, but yep. and shapes and reinforced re reinforcing triangles and things like that. But it's the mindset of experimentation that helps those kindergartners to succeed at that versus mm -hmm. um, having to design the whole thing before you ever put something together. And, right. you know, of course, it's a time to exercise. Now, anyway. I remember a slight tangent on marshmallows and spaghetti. There was an organization I was working with, and they one of the things they did was balsa wood towers and see how much weight they could hold. And, you know, the winners, you know, this tower, which probably weighs less than a pound, it's made of balsa wood, it's, you know, a foot tall, I think that was the limited height, holds like 900 pounds. Just... Mm mind-boggling mm. that that mm. little tiny bit of balsa wood can hold that much weight. So, all right. All right, so enough agile. Let me ask this question. Do you still consider yourself an engineer? Yes. An engineer has a technical mindset that solves problems and provides solutions for people. Even though I coach right now, I co even though I coach technical people and I coach managers, um, I'm still working very much in the engineering sphere. And some of the best managers in my mindset, in, in my mind, some engineers sometimes make some of the best managers when it comes to technical management. And people that come to the technical career fields that are managers that have no degree in engineering often are not 
I, it's in my experience that they're not effective managers um, with regards to anything dealing with technical. Because the moment you start to get technical, people without engineering or science backgrounds or any kind of technical background, they just kind of, their eyes roll back in their head and, right, right. you know, they get lost real quickly. Uh, where the agile stuff that we we're talking about is based on rules and principles that are very much physics and engineering related, the physics of how people work and systems engineering, how systems are built. So it's just taking those disciplines and applying them at another level. In fact, some of the principles and practices that inform the way we do business today are based on real detailed technical studies and things like that. So uh, I believe it was my first guest, uh, Joe, uh, we talked a bit about management and, you know, whether you're managers and directors or engineers or not. And, you know, he definitely came down in the camp of, you know, if you're managing engineers, you should probably have an engineering degree of some sort. Now, I think there's some truth to the idea that managing is a skill. Engineering is a skill. How do I phrase a question? How uh, far away from engineering do you think a manager could be and still be a good, effective manager? How far away from engineering be and still be an effective manager of engineers? Is that the yeah, question? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would say that somebody who has no technical understanding of systems whatsoever is going to struggle, whether they have an engineering degree or not. Um, that having an engineering degree teaches you to think in a certain way. It really teaches you how to think uh, logically, problem solving, problem solution. So that's gonna help you with dealing with managing technical work. On the other hand, if you're purely a technical person and you have no social and people skills whatsoever, <laughs> you're gonna have a hard time when it comes yep. to managing sure. people, yep. okay? You need to have enough of a technical background to under, be able to listen to your people who are telling you something and make a good judgment decision and not just take their, but not just taking their word for it. But then again, that comes down to leadership versus management. If you're just signing their time cards and approving their payroll, well, yeah, yeah you can, anybody can do that, anybody right? Do that. Sure, sure. But if it comes to having to make a decision about we're going to go down this path versus that path from an engineering decision and then and the manager, the leader has to make a decision, then they're either just listening to their people without and they can't judge for themselves whether or not this is good advice or not so good advice. Uh, one of the things, my father was in the Air Force and he was a enlisted person before he was an officer in the Air Force. When he became an officer in the Air Force and took over uh, managing logistics and supply, he went into that first job and he didn't let them know at first that he was an officer. And he listened mm -hmm. to what the people, the enlisted people had to say. And he could tell who was really telling a good story, who who's telling the truth versus who was making it up as they went along. Right. Having walked the road before is gonna help you to lead other people in the right direction. If you haven't walked the road before and you just walk into a job as a manager with no background in that area, I think you're gonna struggle managing the people underneath you. So currently you're doing strictly teaching and training or you're also managing projects? I'm coaching. I'm mostly coaching. coaching. I coach. I, um, I, uh, coaching. The type of coaching I'm doing isn't like NFL coaching, uh, but more it does involve some element of teaching. It involves helping people to find the path uh, to what's going to help them to succeed. It involves suggestions and listening to people and often letting them fail uh, when they are otherwise, um, when they choose not to listen or they listen and watching them fail too. Sometimes, you know, I'm not, so, you know, but it involves a lot of suggestions and working with people. Yep. Differentiate coaching from managing. Okay. Coaching is somebody who has an expertise in uh, whether it's the ways things work and helps people by offering them suggestions, by listening to them, 
um, in a sense, a little, it involves a little bit of mentoring and uh, helping them to know the way, right? To show, to first there's some element of teaching, showing them the way, and then helping them to find the way for themselves. You said coaching versus managing. Managing is uh, being responsible for a set of resources and keeping track of those resources and making sure those resources are being used effectively. For example, money or manpower. Now, what's an interesting place where they intersect is people often think, managers often think that people need to be used efficiently. And I disagree with that concept. People need to be used to deliver the most value. Okay. And there is often a conflict between using your people efficiently or 100% utilization of your people versus helping them to deliver the most value. Okay. If you use your people at 100% efficiency, actually, they're, the, the amount that they're going to work able to deliver in terms of value is going to go down. Now, that doesn't mean people don't work 40 hours because they will, but it means that you're not, you're not, booking up their time with commitments to the point that they never have, that there's always this huge amount of work that they're always having to work on. They're having to multitask and switch. So managers need to learn to manage value, manage the flow of value, not manage their people. Okay. Now that means that they still have responsibility for the people that they work on. But instead of tracking the hours and time that they spend on this versus that and coming in and saying, why aren't you busy working on something? Right. It's it's about focusing on making sure that the value is being delivered to the customer. Hmm. That is pretty interesting. So on, the, so on the coaching versus managing, one might sum up very succinctly, one being me, uh, coaching is helping you do your job better, whereas a manager is helping you do your job. Is that a yeah? Fair? And making sure you have the resources to do your job, right? right. That's, I mean, that's I, a huge part. Right. Of it. That's a huge part of it. Right. If I can't give you a license to manage, to I can't give you an AutoCAD license as a coach. Right. Your manager can approve that, right. right? So, but I, yeah. The other thing that came into mind as you were discussing the. Um, the managing and you know not striving for efficiency. Uh, I think you've read the book The Goal, right? We've talked about that once or twice. Mm -hmm. right, goal, so, one of my favorites. Yeah, if you haven't read the book, uh, The Goal, written back in the seventies or eighties, uh, Eli Goldratt, I think is the guy's name. Fascinating, very interesting story. It's written as a story, but teaches you a lot about uh, manufacturing. And one of the points in there was, you know, their efficiency, their their net output went up quite a bit when they stopped focusing on keeping a machine 100% busy. They went to do what was smartest. And, uh, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to do that book justice trying to sum it up, but I do highly recommend it. And I think uh, you get two thumbs up from the Usher and Smith uh, at the library uh, podcast. Yes. Yes. Um, Goldratt, I mentioned earlier, you asked me when Agile, I said lean, the lean manufacturing movement. Uh, Goldratt is a big, with his theory of constraints, the theory of constraints informs a lot of lean thinking, where he's focusing on a fancy, non-fancy way of saying the word theory of constraints is to say bottlenecks, focusing right. on the right. areas that constrain your ability to output value. But I, I do have to throw this in there because I read the book back in the 90s, and then I listened to it on tape five, six years ago, or on tape, on a podcast. And <laughs> it was very amazing, because somewhere in the in the audio version of it, they gave a phone number. And the phone number was 867-5309, which, as we all know, that's the number to Jenny from the two, Tommy and the Two Tones back in the 80s. <laughs> I did ask somebody who was, like, in the mid-20s if they knew what that phone number meant, and they still didn't know what it was, so it was... Kind of happy that uh, that number lives on, but uh, anyway. Yeah. So um, I want to get into some uh, fun, silly things that I know. Maybe not silly, but fun things that I know you do. Before I do that, just some interesting talk about engineering and managing, and challenges and getting through those. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, you know a ethical challenge or something that uh, you may have come across in your career and 
how you dealt with that, how, you know, how was it successful? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for asking that, because one of the things that all engineers learn when they go to school, hopefully they still teach this in school these days, is the importance of ethics. I remember when I was in engineering school, the big case study in ethics class was the, the space shuttle explosion, mm-hmm. unfortunate, very unfortunate. And that way of thinking has guided my, uh, having a high standard of ethics has guided my life. And there are times as engineers that we have to make decisions that affect the health and safety of others that may not be popular with our managers, our leaders, our company, or our clients. Probably the most difficult ethical situation I've ever dealt with was when I worked uh, for Air Force on the uh, on the vehicle barrier program, which are the vehicle barriers exist on our Air Force installations at the gates. And the we unfortunately we had contract the Air Force. I was a contractor at the time. I was a contractor at the time, and the Air Force had contracted out the the installation of these barriers. Uh, through GSA, uh, who then contracted out to another um, uh, company to install them. So anytime that I, as the engineer, had a problem with something that was being done, I had to go through the Air Force, who had to go to GSA, who the, um, the General Services Administration, who then had to go to the contractor. I, I couldn't just turn and look at the contractor who was doing the work and say, fix this, this is wrong, right? And they were unfortunately failing miserably and there was a series of contract letters and having to go back and fix things and as the engineer i tried to start doing design reviews for these individual sites there were no design reviews or site specific designs being done before i came on board and uh, starting up that process um, and a series of previous personality issues with one of the managers caused me to get in kind of negatively with uh, some of the people that I worked with. And then I was asked to go out on site to an Air Force base to watch the installation of one of these barriers, the the fixing of one of these barriers that had already been previously installed. And I saw that they weren't installing in accordance with with the design drawings. I had been told not to talk to the contractor. I said i just looked at him and i looked at the drawing i said this calls for so many well points uh i don't see that number of well points hey what do you think uh for making that comment to the installer i got myself in a lot of trouble hot water with the gsa official who was not happy that i was talking directly to the contractor that night i was out on site watching them install at night and the the contractor who was installing came to me and said, hey, there's a void underneath the ground here, which goes directly underneath the road, which the people drive on every day on their way into base. In other words, the water had eroded out underneath the road and there was going to be a sinkhole. One day somebody would be driving on base and they would their vehicle would just collapse through the asphalt. Possibly, right? right? And um, I made the decision to call the engineer on base, the base civil engineer. I was a civil engineer background. I knew who the right person was to call. I called that person out. It was it was at night. I went to I went to where I knew the command post was, called the person, asked them to come in. Uh, the next day when I went into work, nobody would look at me. I was a leper. And uh, I, uh, a month later, I didn't have a job there. And I was told, well, you just don't really fit in here and you're not. Um, so, um, so what, what I learned those, from that, go ahead. Just a clarification. Were those two issues related at all? Because there was water going under and causing erosion, a potential sinkhole, and there was people not doing things right. Were those related to each other or just yes. issues yes. that came In off fact, temporarily at the same time? No, no, no. Because if you go back to the fact that I said that no site-specific design was being done, um, when the contractor was awarded to the prime contractor who was doing the work, they assumed that every site would be the same and didn't take into account things like soils, uh, the site conditions. And so if you were installing these things in clay, uh, which some sites had, then they would flood. And if you installed them in silty areas, then the, and didn't put in the correct surrounding 
materials like gravel, for example, right, right. then they would the water would erode around the uh, the soils around the barriers. So because no engineering was designed done for the installation, the the barriers themselves were designed, but nothing was taken into account the site specific conditions. Um, and that was one of the reasons we had to go back and fix some of these things. They were flooding. Uh, there was some poor quality issues and a lot of other things. It was done very much in a cookie cutter design, uh, way. And unfortunately, the Air Force has continued to have problems with these barriers uh, since then. So don't go onto an Air so, Force base. They're not safe. Uh, be <laughs> drive slow when you drive across those vehicle barriers because... You follow the speed limit signs when you drive across those bears. You should always follow the speed limit sign on a base anyway, but drive slow when you drive across those bears or you might end up getting launched into the air. Um, take your, take so, your light car and not your, uh, your F2 Ford F-250. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so, so, so the thing I learned from that experience was uh, I can still look myself in the mirror every day and be, be – I can – know that I did the right thing. And I ended up getting a better job after that anyway. Um, I was blessed after that, but uh, so getting fired from that job was really one of the best things that ever happened to me in my career. But also you need to be careful in the way you say things and handle things. Um, mm -hmm. And I do approach things a little, a little more tact than I used to. Uh, but in the end, if you say, it's this is not a good thing as an engineer and the managers don't wanna listen, you have to do your best to communicate in a tactful manner and make your point. Unfortunately, sometimes management makes a different decision. For example, you know, the oil leak in the Gulf. So yep. you just gotta, sometimes you gotta live with that. Uh, I don't want to be the engineer who lived the rest of my life wishing I had said something. Yep. Yep. So, all right. So I'm going to go off on a sharp right turn and uh, talk about another, something in, or in your personal life, uh, karate you've been doing for a number of years. Yes. Um, how did you get into that? And why karate instead of any of the other martial arts? Interesting. Um, American Kempo Karate is the um, st style. Uh, my wife um, found this place Family Martial Arts Center in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And the Family Martial Arts Center in Fitchburg, Massachusetts has a strong character development program. And um, the, the program was recommended to us by a friend. My wife went and checked it out. She told me, you gotta see this place. So it was really about the character development program, why we got into this place. Why uh, this place, when I, when I set foot in there, to see the first uh, lessons, I was, I was, I can't say happy. I was, can't say elated. I was blown away by how magical, and that sounds like an over-exaggeration, but how magical their program was and instantly saw the value in that. The other thing is up until that moment, my family was all doing every different activities and we decided this is what we're going to do. You chose a studio instead of a style of martial art. Would that be correct? I would say that would be correct. I was attracted more by the character and the virtues that were being taught there and uh, the style than necessarily doing my homework. And I couldn't have told you the difference when I started between Kempo and BJJ, for example, Brazilian right. Jiu-Jitsu. So I wasn't looking for Kempo as a style when I chose, uh, when we chose that place. Now, isn't properly done martial arts include that? You know, I, I go back, <laughs> the first thought I had was, you know, Bruce Lee and with Enter the Dragon where, you know, it, it was not just fighting and then other Bruce Lee movies and then even going a slightly more modern to uh, The Karate Kid where it also was not just fighting. Right. I, I would say good martial arts, many good martial arts programs have martial arts teaches character. Okay. Right. Uh, not all martial arts programs teach good character. Okay. Uh, there are studios who uh, are 
abusive to their students who are teaching their students. There are student, studios that care very much about winning a competition more than defending yourself or building your character. Um, just like if you look at, you know, Cobra Kai versus uh, Miyagi-Do Karate in the movie, right. in, right. you know, um, you see two different styles there. Uh, one teaching character, one teaching, you know, balance and discipline and virtue versus another one teaching you what when strike hard strike first when it all costs right that mindset also even within the art you have different people who um um kempo itself by by itself is the study of motion uh design, american kempo designed by ed parker but it was the people who founded the studio that i belong to uh, Dr. Len Broussard, who was very much, uh, he's a family psychologist, and he and his son, Lenny Broussard, built a character development program that was focused on building people with good character, not just teaching a martial art. So I would say martial arts teaches you character. Not all martial arts programs teach good character. And the one that I belong to teaches is excellent at uh, instilling character. So if I was a fellow who did not have character, I believe I have character, <laughs> I, I would try to claim that that wonderful segue from engineering and ethics, you know, engineering technical and the important character aspect of it, that I was an intentional segue into karate with the <laughs> ethics and character aspect of it. But uh, since I do have character, I will say that that was just a wonderful, uh, happy accident that that happened that way. But no, I think that was good. It was actually kind of interesting how those two things went together nicely. All right, so we are getting towards the end of our time. And we have a couple more things. One is the grab bag question, which uh, I know Excellent. you are one of the few people to have listened to most of my episodes so far. So you know what the grab bag question is. For those of you who haven't listened, I have a list of silly inane questions, some sillier and more inane than others. And... Uh, I have my guest pick a number from 1 to 10, and whatever question is next to that number is the question that I ask him. So, Mr. Smith. I'm going to go with the perfect number, number 7, please. All right, I think uh, four, three out of five people have chosen number 7 so far. I'm gonna go oh, back and... oh, okay, wait, is it I, the no, same no, question? No, 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 you can't back out, can't no. back out, can't back out. No, it's no, different questions. I... Different questions. Okay, oh, okay. I... When Shuffle someone, me. when I... questions that are asked are retired. Or at least put it into the bullpen. They may come back sometime in the future. All right. Okay. Number seven. A favorite dish, food dish, that you eat that most people have never heard of? Oh, man. I hate favorite questions. Questions that have the word favorite in them. And a I dish know someone that you else enjoy. Who... A dish that you enjoy that most people do not think of. You're overanalyzing that. You're too engineering on that favorite word, okay? <laughs> uh, well, I would say a lot of people from New England have had these. But if you haven't been to New England and Massachusetts, then Mike's Pastries Cannolis, uh, you're missing out. If you're ever in the New England area, make sure you go to Mike's Pastries in Boston and check that out because – uh, it's worth it. And make sure you save some extra time because uh, there might be a long line when you get there. So, every, lots and lots of cannolis, but Mike's has the best? Yes. That's the same? Okay. All right, very good. Uh, I think we just about wrapped up. Any last final comments, thoughts? <sighs> Pull out your soapbox uh, and make a speech. We're going to have to do something engineering related, Bert. You know, we have lots of friends you and you between you and me who are engineers and I've been trying to figure out how the 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 collection of our good um Christian men who are reinforcing each other are how could we could work together and build something together. But um just remember that in the end um when you're working towards something in your company engineering that the goal is not to keep your people busy the goal is to deliver value and make um make the best products for your company yep. and uh, when it comes time to make that difficult decision um between doing it right or taking that shortcut and getting it done 
that those kind of decisions usually come back to bite you. Just think the big dig. And, uh, yeah, when you keep that in mind, uh, usually you're going to come out in life. Be transparent. If you have to make a tough decision that involves ethics or safety of people, make sure you're transparent about those decisions. And uh, do the right thing in your career, and you'll usually come out on top. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the right thing for your customer is telling them to stop doing what they're doing and go hire somebody else or just kill the project. Yeah. You know, and that, uh, That's right. Definitely takes money out of your own pocket, but it's the right yes. thing. And in the long run, hopefully, we'll uh, be beneficial to all parties. So. That's right. That's right. Sometimes you have to tell the customer that this isn't a good idea, and that may cost you money, too. Right. That may cost you a job to say that. But... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. You'll still be able to leave, you'll still be able to sleep at night and look yourself in the mirror in the morning and feel good about it. So, yeah, you said sometimes it's not as enjoyable to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning though. <laughs> Nothing to do with ethics, especially when you're as bald as I age. am. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm catching up though. It's scary. I was since the pandemic and all this sitting in front of a tube and watching pictures of myself. It's like <laughs> good grief, my forehead is getting large. <laughs> All right, who are you picking so for the I, Super Bowl? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, folks that, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago when the Bills, I'm a Bills fan, uh, when the Bills lost that game because they had 12 men on the field, I uh, got a picture of a Bills helmet and stuck a fork in it and said on my Facebook, said this is my assessment of the Bills right now. And so <laughs> today, I, today I said, well, I may have been a little hasty in my judgment. So I took that picture and Unedited the fork out and put it sitting next to the helmet. <laughs> so no, I am. Uh, so so, you, so we're watching this. We're doing this podcast on December eighteenth, the day after yes. the Bills absolutely spanked the Cowboys. To my <laughs> great pleasure. Oh and, my goodness! Yeah, I, number one defense. You know, trying to be as uh, objective as I possibly can. You know, the two announcers said I wouldn't want to be another team in the AFC running up against the Bills as a number six seed or so. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, it was like 10, 15 years ago. I remember a run-up, you know, I'm looking at the AFC and every one of the six teams, I looked at them and said, that's a good team. And I think that was yeah. the year I ended up that Pittsburgh won it, won it all as a number six seed. Yeah. So, right. so there you go. I, uh, yeah, I just once in my life, I just want one Bill Super Bowl. I don't think it's asking too much. No. Well, very good, Brian. This has been a great pleasure, and the first episode of Bourbon with Engineers, and uh, we will see you uh, see you soon again. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. That wraps up today's episode of the Beers with Engineers podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like, subscribe, give a rating, and most importantly, tell your friends whether they are an engineer or not. I'm happy to have them listen. Any comments and suggestions are welcomed and encouraged. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know somebody that you think might be a good guest on the podcast, please let us know that too. Until next time, this is Bert saying goodbye.